This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. Well, it is 2014 and in the U.S., you know what that means, right? That's right, midterm elections. So for the next couple of months, we can expect to be bombarded with political ads on TV, the radio, and most certainly now the Internet. And it is the use of the Internet and other technologies by political campaigns that we'll be discussing today, in particular presidential campaigns. To help us with our discussion, we have Jennifer Stromer Galley, who's an associate professor in the School of Information Studies at Syracuse University, and the author of the new book, Presidential Campaigning in the Internet Age. Jenny, thank you for coming on the show. Jasmine, thanks for having me. <laughs> no problem. So perhaps you can start off with giving us a little bit about your background and how you got into this topic, political communication and political campaigning. Right. Good question. Um, well, so here's a fun fact. I studied Bob Dole's website in 1996 for my master's thesis. So um, I've been thinking about how political campaigns are using the World Wide Web and social media f- basically since campaigns began thinking about using the World Wide Web and social media for their campaigns. Um, the book came about uh, um, kind of serendipitously. You know, there's one of those things, oh, wouldn't it be nice to write a book? But time and um, daughters and things <laughs> like that get in the way and make it a bit challenging. Um, but in 2008, the uh, editor of this series uh, asked if I would be interested to write a book. And in 2008, of course, this was, um, uh, this was just – in fact, I'm trying to remember. Early 2008 um, was when the – big battle between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama was playing out mm-hmm. uh, on American television stations and, you know, on Facebook and on the World Wide Web. And the editor at the time, Andy Chadwick, said, you know, we really need a book that actually looks historically at how campaigns have been doing this work of campaigning online. Mm-hmm. And I completely agree with them. You know, I keep seeing these articles and claims made about how Barack Obama was first at, oh, you know, amazing revolutionary fundraising and first at amazing revolutionary organizing of, of people through social media. And um, having looked at campaigns in 1996 and 2000, 2004, uh, there's no question that Obama did pretty remarkable um, feats using social media, but he wasn't the first. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in many ways, he was standing on the, the backs of giants. And so there's a story I felt needed to be told there to help kind of set and contextualize, I think, what it is that the Obama campaign was doing in 2008 and 2012. 
Okay. All right. So you said a historical examination. Why a historical examination? Well, because it looks across these five election cycles. So, um, you know, I spent time looking at 96 and then 2000, 2004, 2008, and 2012. So, and um, trying to set up and hopefully take the reader along on a journey of the technological changes mm-hmm. um, because, you know, it's, it is kind of fun to go back and take a look and see what campaigns were doing in websites in 1996 and to realize how far we have come with digital media, but yet how far we still haven't come. So, you know, it, one of the things that struck me back in 1996 is that the internet specifically was built for two-way, flat, low-hierarchy communication to occur, right? Mm -hmm. There's no central node. It's not like a television station or even your telephone where there's some central node that all information must go through. Um, The Internet was not built that way, and the World Wide Web was, you know, the philosophy of hyperlinking, of connecting across these different um, uh, information sites. That philosophy, campaigns don't – they don't use. They don't embrace – it's not to the advantage of a campaign to be truly interactive with their supporters. And so part of the story of that history is looking at how campaigns have used certain aspects of uh, digital technologies to campaign and try to get elected and how they avoid others like genuine interaction with supporters. Sure. Now you talk about digital communication technologies and, and you know, DCTs in particular, perhaps you can explain to the audience what, a DCT is, and, and is it is it different from an ICT? Oh, that's such a great question. I had, you know, I have to tell you, I so struggled with what to call. You know, what is this stuff? Um, if I talk about the internet, that feels too right. It's too um, well. In some ways, it's too big, and in some ways, it's too little because the internet. I think people tend to think, well, if you're talking about the internet, you must mean accessing. Uh, the World Wide Web and other applications through computers. But as we know, increasingly Americans, uh, as well as people across the globe, are using their mobile devices. And those mobile devices increasingly are able to access um, the Internet, either the World Wide Web or even short messaging services run, technically speaking, through that infrastructure that is the Internet. So, you know, what to call this? And Information communication technology is often a term that gets used, but information communication technology, um, I don't know how to say this. I guess it feels a bit almost old. I don't know. You know, it's, it, it, it's used a lot by Europeans to okay. talk about digital media. Um, but what we're really talking about here is digital media, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's the, it's not only the World Wide Web, but it's also, I mean, YouTube, it's all the streaming media that are now available to people that, you know, the podcast that people are <laughs> listening to of this, right? It's a streaming medium and it's a digital medium. So at the core, it's, you know, it's kind of about the digitalness. Um, but yeah, it's a tricky thing. So I ended up using the term digital communication technologies to try to connote this broader set of, of devices and technologies that all are connected through the internet, but somehow, um, I don't know, are bigger than the internet. I don't know. It's tough. What do you think, Jasmine? Did I, should I use a different term? I don't know. No, I was just struck by the use of DCTs that I hadn't encountered it before. I'd encountered, obviously, ICT, but not, okay. not DCT. And I think it's great. And the way you explained it is, is very useful for other people. Now, we talk about DCTs. What were the promises of DCTs for political campaigning? 
Well, yeah, I mean, there's always lots of hope, right? And, um, and I, I would like to say that I'm a hopeful person, um, that there are, again, the infrastructure, the, the affordances of the, of digital communication technologies, flatten hierarchies, enable user-generated content, um, People can be co-equally producers and consumers of content. Um, in theory, we have greater opportunity to make decisions about the information we um, are exposed to. We have greater power to find information that we seek. So, you know, the idea is that there's almost a, I don't know, like a little de-democratization of the spread of information and access to it. And also participation, right? So uh, I can create, I can connect, I can um, really use digital technologies to um, find other people like me, to organize, to coordinate. So those are some of the hopes, right? So you, you get this sense that there will be greater emancipation, greater democratization, more ordinary people, more involved in the political process. And I... I really want that to be true, I must confess. Um, and there are avenues where I do think it's true, but mm-hmm. I don't think presidential campaigns are the place to look for that kind of emancipatory participation. Um, political campaigns, you know, the purpose of a campaign is to win. <laughs> and that, that winning, of course, means trying to target and find supporters and getting them involved in the campaign and encouraging them to get their friends involved in the campaign has a lot to do with right raising lots of money to uh, be able to sustain the campaign. But at the end of the day, it's, it's about finding and targeting the right people, giving them the right message and then turning them out to vote on election day. Mm-hmm. That's what campaigns are about. And ideally for, for true democratic participation, the ordinary people, those supporters who are being connected to or connected with by the campaign they should have some voice. They should be heard and attended to equally. And I don't think most campaigns have the resources, energy, or willingness to genuinely listen to what most ordinary people have to say. Um, They want, uh, they listen. So what I found, for example, in 2012, campaigns use Twitter as a quick way to message test. Mm -hmm. So they'll send out, they'll test out some messages, see which ones tend to get retweeted, which ones seem to resonate, and then they'll start to build a messaging campaign around that resonant message. But that's not the same, that's not really listening, right? That's just focus group message testing. Um, And it's, and again, it's not to genuinely try to understand what policies or what what perspectives or what strategies a campaign should be adopting. It's, does this message seem to resonate? Okay, let's go with it. Um, and it's, that's not the same thing. Um, it's more of a simulacrum of interactivity and engagement for, uh, for ordinary people, but really what it's all about is getting elected. So then is the uh, use of the internet and DCTs for engagement and participatory democracy, is that a myth or... Does that really happen? That's a great question. Um, I think in the context of campaigns, it's mostly a myth. Um, I, I believe that in other contexts of issue advocacy, um, there's some really great advocacy work happening out there. And um, I think in that sense, yes, there's, there's opportunity. But for campaigns, I mean, th- where there might be some hope is that more people are, are getting touched by campaigns, okay. maybe. 
Right. So you think about um, the the days leading up to the election on Facebook. I don't know about you, but for me, the number of people who were talking about the campaign in 2008 and 2012 on Facebook, for me, was pretty remarkable. Um, now, I do touch a lot of college students, and they seem to be paying attention. Now, when you look at actual voter turnout rates, college-age populations are not turning out at a substantially larger rate than they ever have been. So in some ways, and in fact, I've done some survey research, and I've not found that there seems to be a strong relationship between, say, um, participating on Facebook and sharing with friends uh, campaign information and then actually going to vote. So there, there may still be a bit of a disconnect on that action of voting, but there may be more attention that gets paid. And, you know, the research is pretty clear that if more people pay a little bit more attention, that's still better for our democracy because getting more people involved and caring a little bit more means that over time they might end up eventually more likely to vote and more involved, right? It kind of that escalation of involvement over time and that we can hope for. Sure. Now, would there be a difference in, say, perhaps the use of DCTs with respect to a presidential campaign versus a congressional campaign, which is supposed to be representative, right? Yeah. Uh, Or maybe state government. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's, um, I'm hoping to do some research this fall to help dig into that question a bit more. I think it's a, there's a, it's a really important question. You know, how are local congressional and state level campaigns using social media? Are they using it to connect with their communities? I mean, you know, when you think about social media, you know, what's this, Social media is fascinating because of the social, right? The opportunity for people to talk to each other, to connect. And I can imagine congressional campaigns, savvy ones, figuring out how to really use that networking um, and connecting potential to genuinely talk to and engage uh, in pretty creative ways with their constituencies. Um, But that takes resources and that takes staff time and it takes volunteers who you trust. And I don't know, there's there's kind of a cost benefit there for a campaign. Do they spend the resources and time engaging people at that level on social media, or do you hold traditional events, um, fundraisers, door knocking and things like that? And I don't know where campaigns, what what their calculations are going to be on what the trade-off is and where the benefits are. So is it just that uh, the campaigns don't know the the possibilities of DCTs or Mm -hmm. they just stuck in using it for what works best for them right now? Oh, it's, it's such a tough question to answer. You know, I was at a, um, a conference last week. It's called Campaign Tech. It's run by the Campaigns and Elections, the magazine that, you know, focuses on campaigns and elections. <laughs> and they uh, have this periodic conference, and they bring together practitioners, so vendors, people who are building these off, uh, soft, um, sorry, software applications, and um, it's pretty eye-opening because you have some vendors – who are making applications uh, or interfaces or, or back-end tools that are meant to help campaigns to really use the full potential of the Internet to engage their supporters. And But then you have other vendors who at least report that they – while they're, they believe that their technologies would really help campaigns to better use the full potential of the Internet, the campaign managers and some of the staff just don't see what the point is. They don't quite understand what the benefit would be. And one of the takeaway messages I had from that conference is that the 
it is still the case that you have a class of campaign managers born and raised in the mass media era of television um, who just don't understand or don't trust how to really use social media for their advantage. Um, they have this mentality of, well, let's just go buy some social media, but they don't know what that means or how that actually works. It's not like buying television. It's a very different metaphor, if you will. And a lot of them still don't get it. So it'll be interesting in another five years as that, that generation of mass media campaign professionals begins to retire and a new generation of campaign professionals and campaign managers start to step in. If we'll start to see some change there. Now you do talk about in the book, the difference between the old model or the mass media model of campaigning versus the more interactive um, use of DCT model. Perhaps you can talk about that Um, because you started talking about it, but. Right. Yeah. Um, You're awesome. You really read this thing. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So yeah. So that, you know, the mass media model of, and I'm not the first person um, I just uh, to talk about and, and juxtapose the, the, the mass media era of campaigning with this more digital era of campaigning. But it really struck me as I look across these campaign cycles, how you can see this evolution take place. And, you know, the mass media era starts really in the 1940s with broadcast radio and then evolves to television. Um, And the mass media era is focused very much on trying to identify the right television channels, the right television programs, and to run TV ads that will speak to that audience. And you know that when you buy... Um, uh, you know, when you buy time around, say, TV news, which is one of the historically uh, typical places that campaigns will put their TV advertisements, you know that you're getting a particular demographic who's more likely to be paying attention to politics because they're watching the news. And you've got a general sense of what that demographic profile is, age, gender, um, income, uh, Republican, Democrat. And that's kind of what you, you aim for. And you try to uh, speak to those people in that space, but it's mass messaging, right? So you're sending, it's a one-way message. You're using a lot of emotion and fear appeals in your advertisements to try to persuade people to either love your candidate or hate the opponent's candidate. And, um, and it's, again, it's a one-way model. So it's a campaign to the audience. Audience is passive recipients of those messages. And that's the affordance of the technology. That's what TV and mass media does. And it does well because it allows you to broadcast your message. So you can reach a lot of people very quickly, in theory. The networked model or the digital model of of, uh, of of this era, which really becomes visible in 2004, uh, there's kind of an interesting clash, I think, in 2004 of the mass media model meeting the digital uh, mm-hmm. model, uh, the Howard Dean campaigns one, um, the draft Wesley Clark campaign is another. Um, but that digital model really shifts the channels of communication, right? So that opportunity for the audience now to become a user Mm -hmm. and to be able to send messages back through the channel to the campaign. And um, rather than sort of passive recipients of mass audiences, now you have mass audiences who become active participants in the campaign in some fashion. And the whole work for campaigns, I think, over the past five election cycles is trying to figure out how you how to go from this passive audience who is receiving your mass media television advertisement to thinking about and harnessing um, a, uh, 
I don't know how to put this, you know, taking and using the technologies of, of the internet and all these different communication channels to engage ordinary people in the work of campaigns while still controlling them enough to make sure that your message is clear, that your, your volunteers and those supporters are doing the work that you need them to do mm-hmm. um, so that they are involved and invest in the campaign, but their involvement and work is ultimately benefiting the candidate. Sure which is a huge challenge. So I use this idea of controlled interactivity as the metaphor for thinking about how campaigns are opening enough to make it feel like people can be involved. So you get these, you know, campaigns, Mitt Romney's campaign in 2008, for example, had this, you know, creative video, um, uh, a testimonial about why you support Mitt or Joe the plumber again, also in 2008, the John McCain campaign, um, when the whole, um, brouhaha around this guy, Joe the Plumber, who was at a campaign rally for McCain and began challenging Obama. Uh, Joe the Plumber became this icon that sure. the McCain campaign used and invited people to create their own I'm Joe McCain. I'm sorry. I'm Joe, <laughs> I'm Joe the Plumber McCain advertisements. Um, and, you know, so people have these banners. And they upload these videos. And the campaign then features some of them. And it all feels really good. But all of that was constructed for a particular message by the McCain campaign to really push on the Obama campaign for being elitist and uh, not really appreciating the, the plight of ordinary Americans. So that messaging work is um, definitely harnessing that excitement and energy of, of supporters, but for the work of the campaign. Now, is there a difference between how we are using, I don't know, the internet, which we could almost start calling an old <laughs> medium a little bit, versus things like mobile and newer media like uh, wearables or, or those kinds of things? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, some of it just gets crazy, right? <laughs> Think about like these the wearable technologies that people might be able to use in the future. And what... Dude, let me tell you, what campaigns are doing with our data is terrifying to me. That's the other thing, right? So, you know, your mobile phone, if you have um, an application that is recording all of your GPS sure. uh, information, that stuff gets sold, and it gets sold back to campaigns. And campaigns then use and basically create little heat maps. So if they're interested in a particular precinct and your mobile phone happened to be in that precinct um, and they bought data from a provider that shows a heat map of the places that that mobile phone has been and they could hook it up to you by email address, you're identified. Um, And it's, it's pretty amazing actually the amount of information that campaigns are are collecting about ordinary people to then do micro targeting on. Um, And so, you know, when you think about, so when I think about what happens this next election cycle, 2012, we really saw campaigns um, hone data analytic practices to try to micro-target and do pretty creative um, modeling to identify who they should be targeting. And I imagine there'll be even more of that in 2016, even in this election cycle. Um and yeah, mobile phones are going to be a big piece. The challenge for campaigns at the moment is it's still pretty hard for uh, campaigns to identify who their um, who people are by their mobile devices because cookies, uh, like on the iPhone platform, cookies are not mm-hmm. permissible. Yeah. And so they do a lot of work to try to um, identify people through IP address. So for example, if you're at home and you've got a wireless network at home and you've used your computer, which has uh, an IP address to access and um, 
uh, give your email address to a campaign. So the campaign has your email address. They now have your IP address, and they've got that piece of data. They buy voter data, and then they connect your voter data to, so how frequently do you vote? What party are you registered for? Um they match that up. And then if you have a wireless device, uh, like a mobile phone and that phone, you haven't, um, uh, if you, if you browse, you know, a campaign website on your mobile phone, they don't have a way to track you. But if you connect to your wireless network at home mm-hmm. and that IP address is very similar to the IP address of your computer, now they can connect your mobile device to your IP address, to your email address. And now they know who you are. Yeah. Well, did, data analytics really matter for particularly this past 2012 presidential election. A lot of people made a lot about it, big data, how the Obama campaign had so much more than perhaps the Romney campaign, but did that really make a difference? I really wish I had a, a, a solid empirically driven answer to that. And it's, it's hard to know for sure, right? I, I have this fantasy about being able to work with say the Obama campaign is <laughs> digital and get all of their contact information and look at the voter rolls to see whether or not, um, in, you know, in some cases, I mean, again, looking at it anecdotally, it seems that it did make a bit of a difference. You know, the Obama campaign had field offices, had like four times as many field offices in swing states. And the reason field organizations matter is because the field, the basically the on-the-ground, door-knocking work that gets done in the weeks before the campaign um, – you know, there's research that shows that if a campaign can actually talk to a person at their doorstep, they are significantly more likely to vote. Mm-hmm. Significantly. I mean, it, there's um, so the on the ground field campaign made a difference for sure. Now, the reason that connects to the data is that the Obama campaign, of course, did very careful analytics to identify which households to really target. And mm-hmm. they built a very rich um, environment for tracking the contacts and the level of connection that they had to particular voters that they had targeted. So, you know, it might start with an email message to uh, uh, particular households in a precinct, in a swing state, um, that they thought that they could move from undecided to uh, persuadable. And so if you send out these emails, you try messaging that might resonate uh, women's issues. The campaign worked really hard in 2012 to speak to women on women's issues. The reports of, of, of women living, Democratic women living in Republican districts who typically don't get touched by Democratic candidates because, you know, again, they're sort of a needle in a haystack, if you will. Right. But we're getting email messages and contacts from the Obama campaign, which got them to pay attention. And so there's, you know, a story of a woman who then went to the email, uh, went from the email message to the website and gave her contact information. Um, and then she was, uh, uh, she was called by phone and uh, talked with a volunteer. And in a couple weeks before the election, there were people knocking on our door, mm-hmm. checking in and, and seeing what her thoughts were on the Obama campaign and if she was likely to vote for them. The other piece of this is that um, uh, the Obama campaign in swing districts probably touched every persuadable voter they possibly could. Mm-hmm. So th- the Obama data was really strong in terms – they knew what they were – how. They knew on election night which precincts, which districts they were going to win in the swing states because they basically talked to 
everybody. Right. So we talk, you know, there's a sense that big data is about, you know, a large sampling of data exhaust on Facebook and uh, Twitter and websites. But actually, some of the big data is really about that field game, the on the ground contacting and record keeping around that to really track who's going to vote, who's not, who can you get to go to the polls on election day, who do you not bother with. And once you build up this database of your likely voters, you can tell within, you know, with that, within a margin of error that whether or not you're going to win or not. So the Obama campaign just had a much stronger game on that than the Romney campaign did. Great. Now, we've been talking about campaigns and the use of DCTs. Well, what really has been the impact of DCTs on campaigning? And then the converse, what has been the impact of campaigning on DCTs? So I think on the first part, uh, digital has pushed campaigns to figure out how to bring citizens more into the work of campaigning. Um, in some ways, we're going back to a model of campaigning that we saw in the 19-teens, 1920s, when political parties were really strong. Mm-hmm. And you had precinct captains and party bosses <laughs> who knew everybody in their in their districts sure. and were very involved with them and, and were talking to them face-to-face, you know, shaking hands and making deals. And in some ways, we're kind of going back to that, although there's now this mediated role um, or mediated step. So is that, and then on the flip side, I would say that um, that political campaigns really do push. Um, campaigns have to innovate with technologies quickly, and you see that the vendors that work around political campaigns take what they've learned in the campaign cycle and then they take it to corporate America and to nonprofit organizations as well. So they take the strategies and tricks they've learned through digital campaigning and uh, and bring it to the marketplace. So, um, you know, there's been a, a crop of startup companies, mm-hmm. right, that started with campaigns that now are independent enterprises. And, um, and I do think you see some interesting innovations with campaigns. I mean, Facebook and Twitter, for example, now have offices dedicated to politics, right? Mm-hmm. So there's 12 at Twitter, 12 Facebook political um staff members down in Washington, D.C., and, you know, their job is full-time thinking about how to innovate Facebook so that it will be better useful to campaigns because, you know, why? Because Facebook makes a lot of money off of campaigns. (laughs) Great. So, okay, so for the listeners, what should they take away from this? What's the takeaway from your book? Or if you had to describe your book in a short blurb, what would you tell them? Obama wasn't first, <laughs> and these uh, presidential campaigns are not democratizing. Great, great. So what's next, Jenny? Well, so, right. Um, I'm planning, as I said, to think about some work on the this uh, off-season presidential election cycle. So I'm looking at uh, congressional and governor's elections, and... Um, trying to understand more how it is at the down ticket level these campaigns are using social media and thinking about what to do for 2016. I am hoping to do an update of the book Mm -hmm. uh, to add a 2016 chapter. Um, And in that process to go back and look at 2012 again, I have to tell you, it was really hard to write 2012 after it happened. It was much easier in some ways to go back and look at 96 and 2000, 2004 and 2008, because you've got that, you have the bit of distance Mm -hmm. um, and certain things stand out, um, 
they sort of stand the test of time. And it was really hard writing the 2012 election chapter kind of while it was unfolding. So I'm looking forward to going back. And now that I know a bit more even some of the ins and outs of what happened to go back and update that chapter too. So yeah, so those are some of the things that are next, but continuing to definitely live in the world of political campaigns on the internet. Great. Now, if if our listeners want to read more from you, can they find you online? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I created a website. You know, your authors are not told that we have to do this. <laughs> Publishers don't really market for us anymore. So, so I'm I'm pimping myself. You can go to stromergalley.com, stromer-galley.com, um, and uh, you can read. Uh, I think the first chapter has been Googleized in some fashion, so you can read that and take a look. And um, yeah, and hopefully there'll be further updates. I've been doing some talks and off some podcasts like this, <laughs> and I share those as I can. Great. Now, where can they find the book? Oh, you know, all the usual vendors, Amazon. These, Amazon, okay. <laughs> Oxford. I'm sure Oxford, my publisher, would love it if I actually sent some people to the Oxford website. But um, don't tell Oxford, but it's cheaper on Amazon. <laughs> well, Jenny, thank you very much for coming on New Books and Technology. I've been your host, Jasmine McNeely. Have a good week. 